One, two, three, four. Screen time, screen time, screen time, screen time. It's my screen time too. Screen time, screen time. Hello and welcome to It's My Screen Time Too, the podcast where two moms review the best and worst in children's programming. From Netflix reboots and YouTube shorts to Disney classics and Pixar blockbusters. We watch, you listen. Find out what you can tolerate watching for family movie night, what to avoid altogether, and what you'll want to watch alone voluntarily. I'm Deborah, And I'm Katie. And I have three kids. Tony is 13 and Libby and Nate are 10. And I have two kids. Jay is seven and Kenny is four. They are pretty stinking adorable, and we each like to tell a quick story at the top of each episode to get all the mom stuff out of the way in advance. So, Deborah, what have your kids been up to this week? Tony, my 13-year-old, has been on a real baking kick Aww. for like months now, and he got some baking stuff for Christmas, and um, he made lemon scones and I'm always trying to impress upon my children the importance of like the more you do something i.e practicing a musical instrument the better you get at it Mm -hmm. you know like math reading hard books whatever so he made scones on Saturday and they turned out pretty well and then he made them again on Sunday and they were even better and so it was like natural consequences the lesson i'm trying to teach and it worked oh and they were i love it delicious um have you had to like gift tons of scones to neighbors because you can't possibly eat all of them in your family <laughs> he brought the sunday batch to school to share with his friends nice. so that was perfect yeah because we don't need like two batches of scones <laughs> for our family of five That is so sweet. And I love it that he is um, embracing a hobby that can actually like help help your workload too. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's amazing. And he's also he'll clean up a little bit. Nice. How about your kids? Well, I mistakenly asked you just now what your kids have been up to in the past week when I really should have given it a lot longer time horizon because it's been a while since we recorded, huh? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. We, we took a little break for the holidays, which was nice and very restorative. Um, and while we were gone, my family took a trip to Colorado. And Kenny, my four-year-old, guys, uh, had his first ever downhill ski lesson And it was stinking adorable. Like, obviously, parents aren't encouraged to be right there when the kiddos are right there. So I was, like, hiding around a corner with my camera trying to take pictures so he wouldn't see me and, like, want to come home. But he was so cute zipping down the little bunny hill in his adorable uh, Little kid ski outfit. I don't know. Maybe it's just because we live in Florida and I don't see kids bundled up all that often, but I got a real kick out of it. No, I love seeing little kids skiing. It gets me every time. (laughs) They were in general, both of my kids were in general pretty uh, down on the cold weather. Let's just say that to be as kind about it as possible. And there was one day when we were taking a walk and it was a very, very short walk. (laughs) 
<laughs> and Kenny was just not having it at all. <laughs> Saying he was cold. So finally I took my scarf off my neck and wrapped it around the outside of his jacket where where it really wasn't doing very much good, but it was just like, all right, I'm doing one more thing, even though I know you already have all the necessary mm-hmm. layers on. And I swear, Deborah, he looked just like the little brother from a Christmas story. <laughs> <laughs> like the snowsuit and he can't put his arms down and he has the scarf around the outside. It was very cute. Nice. <laughs> that sounds adorable. <laughs> Spoiler alert for a little bit later in the episode, but we are talking about kind of what we think is going to be a scary movie for our first episode back. We're talking about Guillermo del Toro's new Pinocchio on Netflix. So we wanted to explore the idea of tackling scary TVs and scary TV shows and movies with our kids. To help us do that, we are thrilled to have Amy Padden back with us. So take it away, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> We're switching things up this week for our Screen Time in the News segment. We are joined again by author and former podcast guest Amy Padden. Listeners, you might remember Amy from our Spaceballs episode and way back from our Animal Crackers episode. We're so excited to have you back. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. Excited to be here. Amy, how old were your kids when you first started introducing them to what you consider to be scary shows or movies or even books? The very first movie we took my older son to in the movie theaters was Toy Story 3, which I thought was a nice, safe bet. But the dumpster garbage scene at the end with Lodso Bear, we actually had to leave the movie theater. So we were not quite as ready as I thought. He was maybe three. So uh, I learned that um, you kind of have to check the ratings um, and read a little bit ahead. So we're not big fans of scary movies, my husband and I. It's just not a genre I gravitate to. We had a hard and fast rule. Harry Potter was for third grade. And they couldn't do Harry Potter until they were in third grade. And then they read it with my husband. And then we watched all the movies together as a family. And so because they'd already read the content, the movies seemed less scary. Um, And so that's kind of how we eased into scary content with our house. We waited, we read it, we did it as a family, and um, it worked pretty well for my kids. Do you feel like after your early traumatic experience with Lotso Bear, wait, what was his name? Yeah, Lotso Bear. Okay. Uh, Do you feel like now you are extra cautious and you want to preview everything that might be scary before your kids experience it? That was the case for a while. My kids are a lot older now. I have a 16 and a 14 year old, so it's not quite the same as it was a couple of years ago. But yes, we were a little extra careful just because they're very sensitive. They don't really like scary content. So that was going to be my next question. So they also, like you and your husband, haven't expressed an interest in scary movies? No, like not at all. But I wasn't sure what you meant by scary. Did you mean scary like horror or did you mean scary like action and violence? So my kids are pretty okay with um, Marvel action. They're pretty okay with chase scenes. And we just haven't done a lot of scary content. This is where listeners, I have to break in and say we're kind of missing the fourth piece of our little panel today because we were going to have Brie on again who joined us for our Ms. Marvel episode. She is a big fan of horror content and she has definitely put a lot of thought into how and when to introduce her kids into the more like traditional horror category. 
but she's sick, so she couldn't join us. We are definitely going to have her on at a later date, maybe to talk about something similar to this, maybe to talk about something else. Feel better soon, Brie. But scary can mean different things to different people. Like, Amy, uh, we took Tony to see Zootopia when he was, like, pretty little, and we had to leave the theater early. (laughs) So, like you did uh, with Toy Story 3. But I am wondering, what made you settle on third grade for Harry Potter? I think part of it was based on the reading level of the Harry Potter books. I think they're Mm. kind of geared towards that eight to nine-year-old reading age. And the books are so safe, right? Like, if the book is scary or you're not digging it, you can just close it. So mm-hmm. that let them kind of pace how fast they wanted to move through the content. How much of a conversation do you find yourself having with your kids about the scarier content? Because I know in, in the past times you've visited us, you're not afraid to like stop the movie or stop the show and have a conversation with them about what's going on. Do you find that you have to do something similar for the more frightening moments? Or like as they get older, they just kind of roll with the punches? For the most part, they kind of roll with the punches. They seem pretty okay with scary content. We kind of let them guide what we show them because we were not big horror genre fans. It's not like I have a whole set of movies. I'm like, oh, you have to see Night of the Living Dead. And oh, you have to see Halloween. And because those are those don't have a special place to me and my husband. And so we haven't pushed that content. But we showed them like Nightmare Before Christmas when they were probably, you know, seven or nine, you know, younger. And they were fine with that content. And it's pretty dark. And they were were okay with it. I should say I grew up in Wisconsin and they're very open with alcohol. Like parents can serve their children and it's totally okay. And that's kind of how we feel about horror. Like parents can choose what's best for their kids and they can do it on their own terms. And I'm not going to judge if you take your five-year-old to see Halloween ends, but my 16-year-old is probably not going to go see it. (laughs) Here's a hypothetical scenario. It's not part of the prepared questions we sent to you ahead of time. (laughs) So I'm sorry. I don't mean to really put you on the spot, but I'm going to. Okay. Because you're going to get to this point probably before me, because your kids are a little older. What if your 16-year-old is like 17 and he wants to watch something that's like super horror, like the Blair Witch Project. Would you watch it with him? Or would you just like hide in your kitchen in case he gets too scared? You could like run in, but turn off the TV. <laughs> this is how I'm envisioning myself. Cause I like, can't, I can't take like scary, like truly scary movies. I would be okay if my kids wanted to watch them, like letting them, but I definitely, I don't want to watch them with them. Yeah, this is kind of where it's nice to have a spouse because you can divide and <laughs> But no, when they're 17 and they're showing an interest, you know, they're they're getting close to being grown-ups and they have to make their own, own decisions anyways. Mm-hmm. The movie's terrible and they hate it. It's great natural consequences. Don't watch terrible content. It'll scare you. I would probably want to have a buffer. So if they really wanted to watch a scary movie, I would probably want them to do it like the first couple of times, like in the afternoon when it's sunny out. And then they have to mm. all evening to like process it. I'm not sure I'd want them to like hit stop and then brush their teeth and go to bed because then all those images and thoughts are in their head. Just, and then that gives them more time to dwell. Mm-hmm. So I suppose we would, I'd probably be lame and make them watch it when it was sunny out or something. That's a really good idea. You guys have so much more faith that you're going to have control over what your children watch at 17. I'm like, if my kids want to watch a horror movie at 17, they'll probably be going to the movie theater without me. And I probably won't even know. Yeah, I guess I'm still in like pandemic mindset. <laughs> yeah. Of everything. 
everything happens at home. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Just speaking for myself, like the movie, the first movie I saw was like Night of the Evil Dead, which I remember had like lots of flying eyeballs and it was like super campy. And like, that's a different type of horror movie than like some of the stuff we get now with like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So like, it also depends on what the kids want to watch. If they want to watch Attack of the Killer Bumblebee, the 1960s B movie that like probably didn't even go to the theater. Like I'm all for it. Like you guys watch that and you have fun with those special effects. You had asked about sharing scary stories and like, why would you do it? And like Harry Potter was really huge to my husband and I so like in college I got the first book and I was like you have to read this and he's like I'm not reading that book and so I just started (laughs) reading it out loud to him and he's like that's a really good book and so we read all the Harry Potter books out loud to each other and he did a year in Ireland and so I would tape on these little tiny tape deck cassettes and I'd send them to Ireland with the chapters so like that was really an important part to our relationship and you know who we are and so that's one of the reasons that was one of the first things we introduced to the kids because Harry Potter was so important to us like and that's part of why we wanted to share that with our kids I would think if there was other families who the parents had very fond memories of some of the scarier movies you know it is fun to share your interests with your kids Like there's so many things I do that my kids are like, yep, mom, I'm not interested in knitting. Thanks. You do you. I'm not interested. (laughs) It's fun to find something that they are interested in that you can share. There's also a bit of prevailing wisdom out there that introducing your kids to scary content teaches them kind of a resilience and helps with a developing understanding of the line between fact and fiction, which is an interesting way to think about it I actually googled in preparation and they said it's like a catharsis to watch horror and scary and that it allows you to release pent-up emotions so I thought that was interesting thank you so much Amy this was helpful yeah thank you so much for joining us again thank you for having me and good luck and I hope Brie feels better after our conversation with Amy we were really curious to know what some other parents takes were on introducing scary stuff to their kids So with that in mind, we put a call out to our social network and put together a little montage of the responses we received. To introduce your child to scary things, I highly recommend Goosebumps books. They are a safe way to introduce scary ideas and kind of the mystery of not knowing what's around the corner, but they can always close the book. It's an easy out if your kid uh, does get scared, but ultimately all of the peril is resolved by the end of the book. I don't know the exact age that we started letting our three kiddos watch scary content, but we do only let them watch scary content that is like kid geared scary content. So the first thing that any of them probably saw was like the scary parts of Disney movies. And now our oldest, our seven-year-old daughter only wants to watch (laughs) um, like villain shows and the scary parts of Disney movies. Odd as it sounds, the first scary thing we probably watched was Hocus Pocus. Uh, my wife was a big fan, and the kids loved it as well. We, we knew how to handle any questions they might have coming forward, and I think the fact that it was more of like a fantasy, quote-unquote, helped. Sure. Um, anything re- involving real-world real world events, floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, we try and avoid just because we run into, we found that we run into more questions, concerns, and fear uh, after something like that. The definition of scary for kids, I think, is very different at different ages. 
There's just certain things that my kids just don't like. They don't like when characters' eyes are red. My one, my uh, seven-year-old doesn't like snakes. My five-year-old does not like when authority figures reprimand their children in shows. Uh, for example, he does not like the Abuela character in Encanto when uh, she talks down to Mirabel. He gets very upset and closes his eyes and will not watch. The best thing about a four and a half year old is they can verbalize. <laughs> so he can tell me, hey, the tractors and cars really scare me, mommy. Can we fast forward that part? So as far as navigating, I usually go with the opinion of the child, right? Every child's different. Some kids can watch Wreck-It Ralph at three and some kids can't. Uh, we did Friday the 13th which they thought was hilarious. That actually is a really good one to kind of test your kids on how they can handle gore because there are some ridiculous, but, but right in your face uh, kills, blood, stabbing, all the fun stuff. But it's so ridiculous, it's not believable. So if your kid watches that and has an issue, they're probably not ready. But if they're ready for that and can see, oh, this is just a movie, oh, I can see where you know they, they did that, the magic behind it, then introducing them to a more realistic scary movie is less intimidating because you can go, hey, remember how in Friday the 13th it was fake? This is fake too. When scary stuff does come on, I try to explain it to them. I try to, you know, tell them what's not real, what can't really happen, what could happen but will probably never happen to them, how to avoid scary situations in real life. Those types of conversation have yet to convince them to watch any more scary content. Another memory I have is um, watching John McClane walk on glass in Die Hard. That one I just really wanted to keep watching though and that kind of was my segue into, uh, into the R-rated movie world. Knowing that I could handle that through my fingers so I know my kids one day will handle that as well. Right now they're happy to avoid it altogether and I am fine with that. They have lots of growing to do still and there'll be lots more time for them to watch scary things. If we're gonna watch a scary movie, we'll shoot for about four or five o'clock, right, right with dinner, right after, so they have time to unwind from it. Have a cartoon ready. When that movie's over, don't just send them to bed. Don't necessarily even have a conversation. Just go ahead, put on some Bluey, and take a deep breath, and let them get those images out of their brain. Of all of our responses, it was fascinating to hear that pretty much no one approached this question in the same way. I guess my biggest takeaway from everyone is that you have to know your kids above all else, and be able to gauge what each kid is individually ready for. Special thanks to Brie Willman, Kelly Sapp, Laura Petter, Val Belfour, Kurt Vonderly, and Brian Edwards. Thanks, guys! Deborah, do you have any follow-up from our last episode? Have you watched anything good since I've seen you last? Good and not that good. Okay, my family watched, tried to play a Trivia Quest show on Netflix. But like, oh. we all kind of got hyped up about it because everybody likes trivia and it was really terrible. It was oh, super no. slow, not fun. The questions were too easy. I mean, I think we just didn't have the right age group. Gotcha. Or the right age kids for it. So I do not recommend Trivia Quest. But I watched Strange, watched Strange World on your recommendation and it was really uh -huh. good. Uh, the kids liked it also. And then on... 
Christmas Day, we went to see Avatar 2 in 3D <gasps> in the theater. First time since uh, March 2020. What a commitment. How did everybody do? Did you last? Did anyone fall asleep? This is a long movie, right? It is a long movie. Everybody did fine. I made them wait to get popcorn till halfway through the movie because I knew I would need like a stretch my legs break and I thought it would help everybody last and they wouldn't drink their drinks and have to use the restroom halfway through so that was that worked out well that was a good strategy what did you think about the movie I liked it a lot did not remember much of Avatar 1 it turns out but that was a Mm -hmm. long time ago but I think yeah. you can watch Avatar 2 without seeing the first one and still enjoy it. Kevin and I have talked about seeing it, but just committing to that long in the theater feels like such a, well, such a commitment even for grown-ups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say if you are into 3D, definitely make a point to see it in the theater. Yeah. How about you? Have you watched anything good or not so good? Well, I like to think since we've been doing this for a while now, I am fairly up on the new shows and movies that are coming out, and I have a good handle even before things hit the theaters or hit the streaming services of what to look forward to. I was 100% certain that the new National Treasure television show on Disney Plus was a kid's show. Oh, Jeremy's been talking about that. Yeah. It's not a kid's show. It's about Shoot. young adults. Okay. Shoot. So I s- sat down to watch it with like my family and my sister's family when we were in Colorado over the break. And it was like, wait a minute. These aren't tweens. These are young adults. It was really as blindsided as I've been by a show in a long time. <laughs> That's too bad. That seems like it would be a good concept for a kid's show. Is Nicolas Cage in it? He's not, which, side note, a good friend of mine, shout out to Kelly, she sometimes listens to the pod, is a big Nicolas Cage fan, and she said that, like, the Nicolas Cage-averse has been kind of up in arms about this because because Nicolas Cage isn't appearing in it. Yeah, that's a bummer. Let's talk about Pinocchio, which is what we are reviewing today. This is a 2022 stop-motion animated musical fantasy film. It was released in select cinemas on November 9th, 2022, and it began streaming on Netflix on December 9th. It's rated PG. It runs one hour, 57 minutes. It's directed by Guillermo del Toro and Mark Gustafson. Gustafson brings the stop motion expertise. Uh, He was involved in the fantastic Mr. Fox and the terrifying movie Return to Oz. The screenplay for Pinocchio was written by Del Toro and Patrick McHale, who's best known for the Adventure Time series. And they seem like an interesting uh, complimentary fit. Del Toro, you listeners, you may know him um, from movies like Pan's Labyrinth, Hellboy, Shape of Water, Pacific Rim. His work has really strong fantasy elements, but they are not movies that are made for children. And um, 
he did create the troll hunters universe with dreamworks animation which is for kids so this pinocchio version is loosely based on the 1883 italian novel the adventures of pinocchio by carlo collodi and strongly influenced by grizz grimley's illustrations for a 2002 edition of the book this one was stuck in development for a long time del toro first announced the project in 2008 and there were a lot of shakeups on the creative side in 2017 del toro was complaining that he needed a budget increase and studios were reluctant to finance the project um, but then netflix finally acquired the film in 2018 and moved things along so this Pinocchio is set in Italy during the time after the First World War and into World War II um, as Pin Pinocchio struggles with his father's expectations and his own disobedient urges and the country slides into fascism. I am always fascinated, and this comes up sometimes on the show, when we weirdly get two movies or shows that are based on the same oddly specific thing at the same time. Right. Like a like Final Impact and Armageddon. Mm -hmm. Like they both came back and they both came out in the same year. And that happens more often than you would think would be common. But this year we also got another Pinocchio movie. We got the remake of the Disney version starring Tom Hanks. So I was really interested to watch this one as a companion piece because they do seem about as wildly different creatively as two projects based on the same novel could possibly be. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, has it just been a certain amount of time has passed since the Disney movie came out and things get recycled? I don't know. I don't know. I feel like with Disney, it could have or just organically been that they had reached that point in like mm -hmm. scraping their animated vault for projects that could be made into live action versions. Mm -hmm. uh, and it sounds like this one has had been in the works for so long with Del Toro that maybe it really was just a coincidence. Mm -hmm. Were you at all excited to watch this after we read the transcript of that panel for our screen time in the news a few weeks ago? I mean, I really admire Guillermo del Toro's work. Um, I told you about the art exhibit that I saw um, that was just all of his really weird collections of like grotesque ephemera. His movies are too scary for me mostly, although I did like The Shape of Water. Um, so I was excited to, to see this. That panel didn't really endear me to it. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh boy, did I have my hackles up before we watched this. I yeah. was really prepared to find fault uh, just because I didn't, I didn't feel like his tone was very warm towards his intended audience mm -hmm. in that panel. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was anxious to find fault, but that means I was also anxious to watch it. Mm hmm. And you know I love stop motion animation since way back when we, we reviewed Shaun the Sheep, like in the first year of the podcast. And we both love musicals, so. Yes, yes. So we did not review the Disney Pinocchio. So I feel like we can talk about it kind of in broad strokes. But what is your grounding in the story of Pinocchio? 
Where do you know it from? How well do you know it? And what were you expecting going into this movie? So the most indelible images of Pinocchio from my childhood are from like a big picture picture book that was based on the Disney movie. So all the Disney images, the Disney story of it. I did watch the movie at some point, I'm sure, but it was this book that I read over and over when I was a kid. And then we have it somewhere in my house and I read it to my own kids. So like the part where he goes to the island of like lost boys and becomes a donkey is like the scariest part I remember. And I was expecting Guillermo del Toro donkey boys at some point in the movie, but it didn't, didn't happen. How about, how about you? What do you remember about Pinocchio? Well, like you, my biggest point of reference for Pinocchio is the Disney version. Although for me, it's more the movie. Mm-hmm. I can't say I watched it a, a ton as a kid, but I it was definitely in fairly regular rotation once it became available on VHS. Mm-hmm. It was never a favorite of mine, I can't say. Something about the story feels so specific to a boy's coming of age Mm -hmm. that it just didn't hold much interest to me Mm -hmm. not that 90% of other stuff made for kids wasn't about boys too like we didn't have a lot of stuff with female protagonists that was going on so it's not like I couldn't relate to a boy as a lead character Mm -hmm. but the whole plot of Pinocchio is essentially like what learning to accept that boys will be boys I kind of hate that now (laughs) right Right. So I was interested to see what Del Toro was going to do with it, and I was prepared to hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Did you like it once you watched it? That's complicated. I feel like I appreciated it, and I appreciated, like, the vision and the artistry, because it is a very good movie. But personally, I didn't really enjoy it. It doesn't at all pass the Bechdel test for screenplays. And there's like two female actors in this whole cast. One plays like a monkey. What? The monkey was a woman? Yeah. That was, um, wasn't that Tilda Swinton? I thought Tilda Swinton because there were two like goddess or fi- what in the Disney version is the blue fairy. So there were two fairies and they were supposed to be sisters. I thought that one of them was Tilda Swinton and the other one was. Oh, maybe I mixed it up. I don't know. But if one of them could have been the monkey doing like an Alan Tudyk situation. <laughs> I don't know. Kate Blanchett is listed as Spadosaurus. Spazatura. That's the really? monkey. Yeah, I mixed I mix them up, but. I love that. I didn't even realize the whole time. Well, that's according to my like IMDb quick Google results. I also, okay, so I watched the trailer with my kids. They didn't like the looks of it. They didn't want to watch it. But when I sat down and watched it, they watched bits and pieces of it with me. And there were elements that were really, really dark. And um, we can get into this later, but like, why was it set in this particular period of Italian and world history? Because it seemed to have very little to do with the plot. Like, 
yes, it was ever present in the imagery. And yes, Guillermo del Toro made the decision to replace the whole Pleasure Island turning into donkey sequence with like a weird boys at like a military Hitler youth youth camp. camp. Yeah. But at the same time, it wasn't like an explicit parable against fascism. No, not at all. It just seemed like he wanted the vibes, and I don't, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that is the most surprising thing to me about the movie is that I was so prepared for something scary, so prepared for something that would visually frighten my kids and maybe even me. I was not prepared to have to like have asides with them about fascism and war at I was not ready for that Mm -hmm. and I don't feel like the movie helped me at all with that it's just it was a very weird choice you're not wrong yeah I had to pause it and like explain why the Hitler salute was bad yeah it's that same (laughs) same and you know I am not usually a pausing the movie in the middle to talk to talk about something kind of mom but it did feel necessary because it was never made explicit over the course of the movie Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it was just scary in a different way and I don't feel like any of our talk about preparing kids for scary content prepared me for how to deal with it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we do talk a little bit about who these movies are for and Pinocchio as we have experienced it in our lives is a children's story and I guess I don't necessarily think this was not a children's movie, but I just think the intention was very muddled. Okay, so the whale scene, like the scenes inside the whale and I guess in the ocean when the whale's like in pursuit of Geppetto and Pinocchio, that to me is what I thought was going to be most of the movie. To me, it felt like maybe this one guy... Whoever got taken off the project or who quit the project. Gus Grimley? Yes. Or Grizz Grimley? It seemed like maybe that first act of the movie was him and then Del Toro picked it up halfway through and did like the whale. I I doubt that's really what happened, but it felt like that whale was so cool and gross and (laughs) visceral and like that is what I expected out of a animated feature by del Toro and to me it's okay if it's not specifically geared towards children just you know we've talked about that before like animation can be for adults and animation can be for all ages it doesn't have to just be for young children Yes, well, that is true. I will say, as an adult, I didn't find it particularly entertaining. It was still the fundamentally dull story about how Pinocchio can't manage to be good for his dad. Right. I did. Okay, so there is also, like, the element of the Catholic Church that is not prevalent in a lot of kids' movies that I've seen any time lately. And, I mean, I only watched this once, but I wonder if... I watched it a couple of times. Would there be more threads of like morality and redemption that you could pick out if you watched it another time? 
that might make it more interesting on a beneath the surface level, like a symbolic level. Yeah, you're way more generous than I am. I was just like, oh, that Catholic symbolism just hits me over the head. Yes, I get it. Pinocchio is tied up like Christ on the cross. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, but there was also something about like, because his nose grows when he lies. And then there's the the scene where Geppetto makes Pinocchio feel really bad. He calls him a burden. And then that's not a lie, but then it's explained to Pinocchio that sometimes parents say things they mean in the moment. And then later on, they realize they didn't really mean it. So like, there was nuance to it, but I don't really want to go back and pick that out. <laughs> it wasn't enough to make me want to see it again. Yeah, I feel like in all of our experience with heavy-handed moralistic uh, movies and TV for kids that I could probably find something that I would rather watch mm -hmm. if I wanted to impart these lessons to my children mm -hmm. and that my children would rather watch because I did realize something about myself because I do love stop motion animation, mm -hmm. but I didn't fall in love with stop motion animation until... I was fairly old. I was in high school mm -hmm. and it was very specifically with that Ardman aesthetic, like Wallace and Gromit, Shaun the Sheep, the kind of imperfect clay animation and also the humor element. Yeah. And I think I really need that humor because with this movie and with the Wes Anderson, uh, stop motion movies and the Tim Burton stop motion movies there's this kind of element of grotesquerie in the character design that mm -hmm. I don't care for uh, and there's this ponderousness to it that just doesn't I doesn't jive with me mm -hmm. yeah even just the color palette was very dreary yeah he's really emphasizing how terrible the terrible direction in which things were headed for Italy under Mussolini mm -hmm. I wonder if this would hit a little differently if it had been released during the Trump years mm. we might have looked at it from our own political landscape lens differently maybe fair I don't I can't believe I find myself on the side of like I want the messaging to be more explicit. This is not this is just not the place where I expect it to be, but I keep coming back to that. I I found myself frustrated. Fine, if you want to set it during the rise of fascism, fine. Mm -hmm. But make that more of a thrust. Mm -hmm. If you want to tie in Cath the Catholic guilt and Catholic themes fine make that more of a thrust mm -hmm. there just wasn't enough if you want to make it scary make it scary mm -hmm. right it just right. felt half baked in all those ways sure yeah all right should we move on to the cast and characters sure, sure. clearly my knowledge of the voice actors was not great but let's <laughs> let's just say was there anyone that you particularly loved or hated okay the, the young actor who plays, plays pinocchio is named Gregory Mann and he was so good and there was one song in particular it's like sort of a plaintive ballad type song and his singing voice is incredible he's just like got that boys choir voice like there's no top to it I loved that I thought he was great 
And then there's a bunch of other enjoyable, talented actors in the cast, too. Yes, a lot of very famous people. Uh, I think if I had a cricket living in the hole where my heart should be, <laughs> it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world for him to have Ewan McGregor's voice. Right. <laughs> it was very calming and steadying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you find you were able to relate emotionally to the characters even though they were animated? Or did the aesthetic give you some sense of remove from Pinocchio's experience? Yeah, I'm not as into the different types of stop motion animation like you are. But all these characters, I think they were intentionally made to look as though they were like carved from wood a little bit. And I didn't love them. Mm-hmm. I didn't love that aesthetic. And then the fantastical like... I kind of, because the Disney Pinocchio is so prominent in my mind, I thought that the fairy beans were a little more complicated, like anatomically than they needed to be. Yes, than they needed to be for sure. It did feel like Guillermo del Toro was like, well, I'm the weird creature guy, so bloop, bloop, bloop. Gotta throw in some weird creatures. And then just back to the cast, like, why did it have to, like, remain such a macho, masculine bro cast? Like, you could change some of the characters to women, even if the original 1800s Pinocchio didn't have any women in it. I don't remember much about the live-action Disney Pinocchio, but I do remember that they inserted a character of like one of the puppeteers in the circus where Pinocchio was, was a little girl. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking that was very sweet. But you're right. Not women were thin on the ground other than the monkey, who I didn't realize until just now was a woman. Well, uh, voiced by a woman. I don't think the monkey character was female. When Pinocchio was performing... The monkey could, I guess, speak because the pup, the other puppets spoke to Pinocchio. <laughs> Do you think that was also Kate Blanchett's voice? I don't know. It must have been. Now I want to go back and listen, but not enough to actually do it. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we've touched on this a little bit. Let's talk about the look of the movie. I've already told you how I think I feel about this kind of spindly brand of stop motion animation. It was also, like you said, an interesting choice to make all of the characters look so artificial. In a way, it served to underplay Pinocchio's foreignness because everyone was a puppet. It's a stop motion animation movie made with puppets about a puppet and how different he feels. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was one visual moment that I really liked and was a little bit scary, but good, I thought. It was when Pinocchio first came to life and he was trying to learn how to walk. Mm-hmm. So they had all these like kind of scary scenes of him like tipped over, scuttling like a spider or like crawling around in really weird disjointed ways just because mm-hmm. he didn't know how legs and arms were supposed to work. I thought that was really interesting and successful. I am just going to go back to the whale. The whale was the best part. Are there any movies about Jonah and the whale? I mean, there's probably a VeggieTales about it. Oh, probably. 
I just read a short story, probably in the Paris Review, about, and it takes place in the belly of the of a whale. It was really good, very inventive. Anyway, if they could make option that and make that into a movie, I'd go see it. <laughs> Maybe in the theater now that you've decided to do that again. <laughs> yeah. Talk to me about the writing. What did you think? I mean, super complex th- themes. Like I mentioned earlier with the Catholic stuff, like there's war, there's truth, there's law, there's who you're loyal to. There's that father-son relationship and like the replacement-son relationship. I thought that the script was good. It's just my own biases. I wanted more humor. There were just very light moments of humor, but it was on the whole so dark. Oh, yeah. It's not funny. There's nothing funny about it, really, except for maybe a few pratfalls. But yeah, that's it. Uh, What you praised that little ballad that Pinocchio sang when he was on the road. Any other thoughts on the music? Oh, I guess. Okay, so the puppet show songs were good. There was some funny part. There were some funny parts when um, Mussolini goes to see the puppet show. (laughs) Yes, Pinocchio rewrote the song he was singing, but he did it in exactly the way a young child would do it, in that he just randomly replaced words with poop. Which was just spot on for how a kid would handle that situation, thinking mm-hmm. they're being all subversive. <laughs> mm-hmm. I thought that the songs were good in the moment, but nothing was made me want to like download the soundtrack or anything. I think most of the songs were in the context of the circus, right? right. And there was only maybe one or two outside that. I don't even know if I would have called this a musical. It's kind of a stretch to characterize this or label it a musical. Just because a movie has some songs, does that automatically make it a musical? If I'm not going to sing it while I'm puttering around my kitchen later, I don't count it. Okay, in the Disney movie, do you remember, do we ever find out like what happened to Geppetto's son? Or we just do we just know that he's like a childless old man? I think we just know he's a childless old man. And he's lonely, but there's no... Like, that scene destroyed me when Carlo loses his life. That was very sad. You're right. The prologue before Pinocchio is even created is quite long. Mm -hmm. And since you know what's going to happen from the jump, it's, uh, yeah, it's quite sad. Agreed. So if, if I were to, like reformat this for kids i'd chop off that first part where carlo dies and then set it not have geppetto get drunk (laughs) set it when he's like starting to carve up pinocchio i also think it's just really and i know i'm jumping ahead to the part about whether or not it's good for our kids but if your kid doesn't have any grounding in history it's a really hard watch and I would caution parents to think about how they're going to address that before Mm -hmm. and if they choose to watch it with their kids right maybe older elementary school I don't even know when military history starts getting introduced to kids that's how young my kids are Deborah what sort of grounding do your kids have in like global conflict 
Okay, so Tony really got into these graphic novel. No, not I'm sorry, not graphic novels. Graphic books about war. They're by Nathan Hale. There's like one on the Revolutionary War. There's one on the Civil War. There's one on World War II. So he actually knows a lot of these global conflict time periods, but that's because of outside reading he's done. And he's in seventh grade, so I think he should know that stuff yeah. by now. But Libby Libby didn't know. She was the one who I, that I paused and explained the Hitler salute. Yeah. Yeah. Did you compare Pinocchio to any adult movie or show? So the story of Pinocchio is all about how you have to accept this disobedient boy for what he is because his intentions are good, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit about learning to appreciate your family for who they are, not who you wish they were. Mm-hmm. I'm on record saying I don't appreciate it in this context, <laughs> but uh, it made me think a little bit about a context in which I do appreciate it, and that is the movie Little Women. Mm. Greta Gerwig has been on my mind a little bit recently because there's been more talk about the upcoming Barbie movie. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about her most recent Little Women movie and how all of these girls, well, three out of four of these girls are disobedient in different ways and they ultimately learn to accept that within themselves and learn to accept and really love their family for even their different characteristics. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I also thought about learning who you are through rebellion, and that made me think, of course, of Dirty Dancing. (laughs) You're welcome, Guillermo del Toro. You should be so lucky to have your film mentioned in the presence of such a great work of art. Well, I like that you went with uh, Uh, the meaning of Pinocchio, because I just went by set in Italy, Italy, themes of dishonesty. And so that made me think of the movie Talented Mr. Ripley. And it also made me think of the most recent season, season two of The White Lotus. Which everyone loved and I still haven't watched. I'm not sure if you will like it or not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, did you like it? The talented Rip- the talented Mr. Ripley has also been in the zeitgeist a lot lately because of the whole George Santos thing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's I love that story so much. Mm-hmm. Just get, tell me more lies that George Santos got away with. Yes. <laughs> um, were you able to cast the gritty HB- HBO reboot? It will not surprise you that I wanted to do a gender swap. Me too. (laughs) I just think an actress that would be completely comfortable in her rebellion and not question why she was making these decisions or who would play that well uh, would be Aquafina. So I would take her as a Pinocchio. Oh, I love that. She would be a good Pinocchio. And then I kind of thought I would like to see Christine Bransky play Geppetto, but that's just because I like her and everything. That's a good one. I like that. I would totally watch that. Okay, so I right, what you got? listened to an interview about Fleischman is in trouble with the showrunner and the author of the novel that's based on Taffy Brodus or Ackner. Um, but I really identify with how she talks about when she was younger, looking up to like 
authors like John Updike, Philip Roth, Don DeLillo, and like very privileged, like macho masculine protagonists and how women weren't even, if there was a woman in the story, she was just a shrew. So anyway, that inspired my gritty HBO reboot. And I'm also have like white Lotus on the brain. Okay. So I would cast it with all of the young to youngish actresses from the white Lotus seasons one and two, like um, Alexandra Daddario, Ari Plaza, Natasha Rothwell, Haley Lou Richardson, Brittany O'Grady, and every, they would be on like some kind of a hero's journey. And every time they told like a white lie to one another, their noses would grow. So if your friend was like, does this outfit make me look heavy? And you were like, no, you don't look fat. Then their nose would grow. Or like, no, I didn't notice that set. No, your gray hair looks like blonde highlights. And it would be like, they would have to like confront the ways in which like women lie to like lift one another up. I think that would be interesting. Deborah, this movie would be 10 minutes long because those <laughs> friendships would be over. <laughs> Can we also have Jennifer Coolidge in some kind of blue fairy role? Oh, I love that. Yes, definitely. <laughs> so was it better when we were kids? I don't know. The, the Disney version is objectively better than this one. But it was yeah, lighter. I mean... Yeah, it's lighter and more kid appropriate to my mind, but it's still not a story I care for. So neutral. Would you ever watch this alone voluntarily? I mean, we talked about some curiosity to like look again to see how he draws out some of these larger themes and or curiosity to watch again to hear if Kate Blanchett does monkey voices. But I don't know. I do not ever want to revisit this. Uh Uh-uh. For enjoyment, no. If I was, like, hired to write a review of it, sure. But no, not for fun. You know, a million years ago when we reviewed the Who Was show and we talked about how there aren't many good history shows for kids? Mm -hmm. Where there's a lot of focus on reading and math, but not sort of the softer sciences? Mm -hmm. I wonder if this could ever serve, like, a classroom purpose... Not that we teach kids about fascism anymore, but if we even were. Yeah, that's interesting. I could see showing like a portion of it. I guess if listeners are looking for like an age range, I guess I'd go with an older elementary kid. I'm not sure it's appropriate for younger. Elementary is not, not when there's like, if you really want to get into Pinocchio, there's a couple other versions. That would be better for little kids. I think. Yeah, I think there's no escape from having to have some of those difficult conversations with your kids while watching this. Mm-hmm. Whereas like when watching Spaceballs, you can kind of still gloss over some of the more problematic things like you are really going to have to explain to your kids, you know, what what war is what the second world war is so if you feel like your kid is in a place where you can have those conversations with them then I guess it would be fine do Mm -hmm. I think it would be enjoyable clearly no but (laughs) uh rating you may find this hard to believe but I'm gonna give it a four trying to be very subjective like I do think this is a good well done creative movie I just didn't like it you're right (laughs) it was creative 
It was unlike anything we've watched. I really didn't like it. Two. We're evening <laughs> out to a three. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> I just can't get past my own issues with it. I'm sorry, listeners. I know you come to me for strict objective reasoning. I can't even get through that sentence. But yeah, just not for me. That's fair. Totally fair. Thank you for listening to this episode of It's My Screen Time 2. And thank you again to Amy Patton for joining us to talk about scary movies. Although I really wish we had brought up addressing military conflict with our kids. So maybe next time, Amy. If you, listener, enjoyed our show today, please share it with someone you think might enjoy it too. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at My Screen Time 2. Or send an email to myscreentime2 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your show or movie suggestions, article recommendations, or general comments about the show. Our website is myscreentime2.com. Our theme music was composed and performed by Deborah and her adorable children, and our podcast is produced by me, Katie. Tune in next time for more real talk about the movies and TV we watch with our kids because we have to, and sometimes because we like to. Bye! Bye! Bye.